And as you are sitting, if you turn to John 13, we're going to look at this passage as we were entering into Lent. So Lent started on Wednesday, we had Ash Wednesday, and Lent is the season that leads up to Easter. So as we're going into this season to start reflecting and focusing um, on what Jesus has actually accomplished for us, we're going to look at John chapter 13. Uh, it's not going to be up on the screen, so I encourage you to open your Bible up. If you don't have a Bible, grab one out of the pew, because we're going to be looking at different parts of this narrative. I'm going to read a large section of it, but not necessarily everything. So as you're following along, if you see that I've skipped something, that was intentional. I didn't just lose my spot. Well, I could have lost my spot, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I lost my spot. So this is God's word to us from John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has already bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put, out, put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread was lifted, has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now because before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So then following this was the conversation that ended with Judas Judas leaving and going into the night to betray Jesus. When he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. Father, as we look at, we listen to, we, we soak in, we sit under this narrative that you have preserved for us, this account that Jesus had with his disciples. Help us to understand it in its historic setting, its historic context, and at the very same time, allow your spirit who inspired it in the first place to press it into us, to show us what it is we need to see, to expose Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen. What marks you? When you think about your life, what is it that actually marks your life? And we can ask that question as individual people, but then also as a community of people. What does, we can think about that, but what does this particular passage say is supposed to mark those that are followers of Jesus? Well, the followers of, followers of Jesus are to be marked by the life of Jesus. That's a super profound statement, isn't it? <laughs> it actually is. The followers of Jesus are to be marked by the life of Jesus. How does this happen? We're going to look at it in kind of three different angles here. Or maybe there's a progress. Appreciating, it's by appreciating his life, it's exemplifying his love and living under his love. Now, those last two we're going to look at another time, a couple weeks. Today, we're going to look at this idea of appreciating his life. If you don't appreciate his life, none of the rest of this matters. So what does it look like to appreciate his life? Well, if we're going to follow him, we have to be marked by him. We have to be marked by his life. But what is his life all about? All right, so I am, this is a non-rhetorical question. I ask lots of rhetorical questions. What is this passage? Like if you were going to describe what the, in one word, the life of Jesus based on this passage, what would that word be? Love. Well done. Good job. It is pretty obvious, right? Love. That's what it is. What a strange word. Is often incompletely understood, isn't it? We talk about love all the time. What in the world do we mean by love? If we're to ever trust him, if we're ever to follow him or grow to follow him, we have to appreciate and be attracted to his life, which means we have to know and appreciate his love. There is no other way. So here are some aspects of love that we're going to look at for the next few minutes. They stick out from the passage, okay? And as we go through this, you may say, Joey, you missed five points. I know. Well, actually, I probably don't know. You will see things that I don't see. Jot them down. Meditate on those things. But what I do want to look at are these six things. And I'm going to list them really quick. They're in your bulletin if you, wanna, if you want to see them. Um, and they are this. His love moves with compassionate confidence. It washes feet. It accepts rejection. It completes the story, it suffers grief, and it reveals glory. All right, so we're going to just walk through each of those. It moves with compassionate confidence. Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So I think this, so this word here for love is agape. It's from that word agape, which Christian circles like to use that term. And I think sometimes we actually try to make it say more than it actually says. I don't want to get into that right now. But I do want to say this. It has meaning in its context. This word in this context does carry a sense of affection and action. 
And what do I mean by that? Affection. I think growing up when I heard that term agape, like growing up in the youth group kind of thing, it was the idea of God chooses to love you, which is very true. But it seemed cold to me. It it seemed um, like just a cold decision. Well, he just has to because that's who he is. That is not what this is. This is not a cold decision. It's affectionate. It has deep concern and appreciation. Jesus' mission is driven by an abiding, pre-existing, unconditional affection for us. That's a profound reality. And it's active. It's on a mission. Verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, right? There's a, there's a clear culmination of his mission. This is the night that he's going to be betrayed that we just read about. As they're approaching this Passover, which was requiring him to act, it was requiring him to move, to depart, He loved his own, and he would actively love them to the end, meaning he was going to faithfully finish what he started. Faithfully finish his mission. Isn't there something attractive about this? How much do we long for people to faithfully finish the good that they set out to do for us? And how often does that not happen? Jesus is presented as the faithful finisher. And as you listen to this account, and really any account of Jesus, does he ever really seem rushed in his mission? Or does he ever seem out of control? If if you're familiar with this story, do you ever feel like, oh gosh, Jesus is just rushed? Have you? I I haven't found a text, and maybe I read into it, but I I haven't found that with the narratives. Why is he not rushed? Well, He trusted his father. That's one of the explanations that were given. And then here we are told in verse 3, Jesus knew that the father had given all things into his hands. What in the world does that mean? Well, he and John, who is the writer of this account, they actually believed all authority had been given to him. I mean, they believe. I'm not saying you have to. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you may say, well, I don't believe that. Okay, they did, though. They actually believe this. And as a matter of fact, every New Testament writer believed this. So Matthew, in his account, at the end of his account, Matthew 28, right before that famous passage, right, that we're familiar with, it says this. Jesus says, all all authority, and how much? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus had confidence in his authority. Unwavering confidence. He didn't feel the situation he was entering into was out of his control. Why then does he step into what he's about to step into? Because if, I, if you give me all authority in heaven and on earth, I am not going to do what he just about, is about to do. If I am given all authority, the world's going to look a whole lot different, and so will my life. Right? Am I alone with this? Okay. Maybe I am alone with that. Why, if you had all authority, would you do what he's about to do? We don't have to speculate. The text tells us, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus moves with compassionate confidence, this affection and action and authority, right? This compassionate confidence because he was compelled by what? By love. So what does he do to display this awesome authority? He has this awesome authority. What does he do? Verse four, he rose from the supper. And listen to how John describes this. John has, it's almost odd how much detail he goes into what happens next. He rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments. 
And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and then to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What Jesus does here is more than I currently understand, honestly. Though he told Peter that he would have a better understanding later, which Peter did, and we have a better understanding of what they understood at that point. But I think this is one of those things, one of those scenes, we just need to ponder. Just envision it. Think about it. Don't try to make a three-point sermon out of it. Just let it soak in. What is being told here? What is being done here? It's, there, is, there are religious and ceremonial, and this is where it takes a little maybe more study, religious, ceremonial, and cultural reasons for what he's doing, but Jesus is tapping into them to take them to a whole nother level. So it is symbolic of much more than we're going to get into right now, right? But I don't want us to miss the obvious. Knowing that there's so much more to it, and I would encourage us to think about it and maybe even research it, let's not miss the obvious. What does it look like when Jesus exercises his love and authority? When ultimate love and ultimate authority meet, the result is foot washing. Humble service. The culture of the day should have had a servant washing feet. All right, this is the cultural part, right? They should have had somebody there when the disciples got there that would have washed the disciples' feet. That didn't happen, so what does Jesus do? So a friend of mine who, and I've mentioned him before, Scott Miller, works with Fellowship of Christian Athletes locally. He's the Larimer County Director. Um, he has this, this almost motto that he speaks about and talks about with his students, but then with also his staff, that is kind of a motto for his discipleship. And it's this, find a need, meet a need. P- pretty simple. It's pretty simple to grab hold of. In some ways, that's not a bad description of what Jesus is about. Find the greatest need and meet the greatest need, right? That is what he does. And so here, Jesus saw a simple need, and what did he do? He met the simple need. How concerned was he about what others would think? I'm, I'm washing these filthy, nasty disciples' feet, right? Hadn't clipped their toenails in how long? Oh, my goodness gracious. Look at the toe cheese. Oh, gross. I did just said that. What is he? He's not concerned about what others are thinking. That was a humbling taste, and yet it's something he didn't do in spite of his authority. It's not, well, I've got all authority, but I'm going to do this. He didn't do it in spite of his authority. He did it to exemplify his loving authority. That turns our world upside down. And whose feet does he wash? Well, the disciples are there, right? Who's included in the disciples? Well, you got this Peter guy, right? Peter guy, that's a, that's a good, faithful, he's a rock, right? He'd never do anything wrong to Jesus. Well, we know better. Like the end of this passage that we didn't read, it says, Peter said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus answered him, you, you're going to lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Jesus knows that this is happening because he he's the one that tells Peter it's going to happen. Then, of course, we have this Judas guy. Go back sometime and reread this whole passage again. Judas and his betrayal are this looming shadow throughout the whole scene. He, he kind of sticks his head into all these different places. John keeps reminding us of him. 
Jesus, knowing all of this, that his denier and his betrayer, and really all of them before the night is over, at some level, is going to betray Jesus. Knowing this, he still washes their feet. Meaning what? His love accepts rejection. Think about, I want to think about like Jesus' fulfillment of something, right? Think about the old story, the Old Testament. How many times Israel turned from God, rejected him, and what did God do? I'm done with you. Is that what he does? Okay, many places you could go throughout Scripture, right, to look at this. But one of the great places is the book of Judges. Go read Judges. See the cycle that they go through. And you hear this over and over again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served other gods. Then they're overtaken by enemies, right? They suffer greatly. And then what happens? But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord rejected them. No. When the people cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Jesus is the embodiment of this Lord whose love accepts rejection, who turns the other cheek. Though this seems unbelievable. I mean, really, this is unbelievable. How how many, like, like think of your human relationships. This is almost blasphemous to our culture. Even so, isn't there something attractive? Don't you long for this? I can't, I can't quite get my mind around it, to be honest. But over the last week, like reading this and thinking about it and praying about it, I can't get my mind off of it. This is, this is the nature of God. Now, his accepting of rejection has two opposite ways it can go. We don't want to miss that reality. He obviously loves and he's going to lay down his life for those who turn from him. But only those who acknowledge the betrayal and actually accept, not just the foot washing, right? Because Judas accepted the foot washing, but that deeper offer of acceptance that Jesus is offering. They're going to have more than just their feet washed. For those who, having rejected him, realize his love is so much greater than all the other things that they pursue, when they realize that and they repent, they turn to him, his acceptance of their rejection leads to forgiveness and restoration and hope. But, as we see with Judas, Jesus will also love him to the end. But in the end, if Judas... Or if we refuse to accept Jesus' acceptance, Jesus will allow us to have our way. His acceptance of this ongoing rejection leads to ongoing separation. So I I don't remember if I've used this quote at this church or not, so forgive me if I have. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, he says this, There are only two kinds of people... In the end, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell, no soul that seriously and consistently desires joy is ever going to miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. Jesus' betrayal doesn't call into question God's plan, God's faithfulness. 
Jesus isn't like, oh my gosh, I'm being betrayed. What is happening? It doesn't, doesn't put into question God's goodness or his love. It actually exposes it. It's part of the story he came to fulfill that he completes. That's how he puts it in verse 18. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay, why did this betrayal have to happen to fulfill scripture? Well, Jesus is quoting here Psalm 41, which was written by David. Okay, David is the one that is saying this. So Jesus is identifying with the betrayal that David experienced and David is accounting. This was part of Israel's story and part of Israel's king's story that Jesus is now taking on to himself in order to bring that story that was incomplete to completion. But also, so you get that? That's part of it. But also to bring our story and our experiences to completion. Jesus lives our story that is full of betrayal and rejection. You have been betrayed. If you've lived more than 10 years of life, you have been betrayed and rejected in some way. Jesus doesn't escape that part of our story nor does he try to escape it. He knows what it's like to have someone betray you, even your closest friend whom you've cared for, maybe even whom you've trusted. He knows what it's like. But also, Jesus is living out the great betrayal of humanity toward God. This had to happen to fulfill Scripture's promise to restore people out of exile, right? That's the old language, out of sin, out of rejection, we needed one who could experience the betrayal of men and women that they inflict upon one another. We needed somebody that could actually experience that, but also one who could physically absorb the betrayal of man toward God. It's almost like we need a God-man. Experiencing this was the only way that Jesus could justly offer forgiveness that he could complete the story of restoration that Scripture promised, and that honestly, we and the world outside of us are desperately longing for. And I know this part can seem strange, especially if Christianity is new to you, or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. This can be some weird stuff. Okay, we get that. But even if it's strange, even if we don't fully understand it, isn't there something attractive about it? Isn't there something that, that appeals to our longing We long for heroes. A new hero movie is coming out again next week, right? We are longing for a hero, hero that can connect with us and can save us for a better civilization. We are are longing for it. And with this, Jesus doesn't just glide through with a smile saying, isn't this beautiful how this all works out? Running through the roses, right? With this little happy face. Okay, and this is a biblical verse, but often taken out of context. God works all things together for good, right? He doesn't, if that's true, okay? That's not what he's saying here. Why do I say that? Well, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testifying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. This, this troubled is a cause of acute, the cause of acute emotional distress or turbulence. It is to cause great mental distress. Jesus was in great mental distress. Jesus, who had all authority, suffered grief 
He suffered great. He didn't just like feign it. He didn't just pretend it. He just didn't know it because he was God and he knows all things. He knew it because he experienced it. Because he loved his friend. He hurt for his friend. He experientially knows what it's like to be betrayed by somebody you have loved and you have served and you've worked for their good. This suffering is part of his identification with us, but also his identification with God's painful love for us. This is how he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. Which, he says, reveals God's glory. So he comes to a conclusion in a sense. John said in verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, okay, after this, the betrayal, this is what he says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And he goes into all this glory language. All of this leads to God's greatness being exposed to the world. What is this glory? At its heart, it must be this love. What kind of love? Love that moves with confident compassion and washes feet and accepts rejection and completes a story and suffers grief that leads to a cross. This love is the, re- it's the revelation of God's glory. And as we grow to appreciate this wondrous, glorious love, what's that, that old song we sang in the first service? Um, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, we're going to sing it now, aren't we? Did, I, did we change that one? I can't remember. Okay, yes, we did change it. Okay, I won't read it. We're going to sing that in just a second. Okay, as we grow to appreciate this wondrous love, we're increasingly compelled to do what Jesus says, turn and love one another. Here's your power and your motivation by which the world will see something very different, that we follow a different kind of king. And even more, maybe they'll be attracted to this king, this God, as they start seeing what human community is supposed to look like when it's marked by the life of Jesus, saturated in the love of Jesus. Father, your love is beyond comprehension. It is wondrous, beyond our understanding, and that's a good thing. We're never going to plumb the depths of it, yet we can grow to know it more and more. So our ongoing prayer is, Lord, show yourself, center us. Let the, the beauty of your love that is manifest through your Son and the way that he loved, may that, may that impact us in real and practical ways so that we might be a transformed people who in turn love those who you put in front of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let the song of his wondrous love, let that resonate in us. Right? It's him and his love that is the transforming power for us. Let's bow to it. Let's, let's allow his hands to wash not just our feet, but our very being. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who have been loved by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.